as we approach 100 episodes of Nightmares on the Lost Highway, we thought it'd be a good idea to look back on what we've accomplished, built, recorded, put out there, and I'm going to put that all together in a series of best of episodes. That's right. That means you're listening to a clip show. So please enjoy. I made sure that each episode's title is at the beginning of each segment. If one of these segments reaches out and grabs you, just know that uh, that's the episode you're looking for. And you can go back in our library and find that episode if you hadn't listened to it previously. These are just condensed versions of the original episodes. So the original episodes have a lot more information, more stories related to the topic. Thank you all for listening to Nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Hopkinsville Goblins. The story really begins about 7 o'clock, 7, 8 p.m., when Billy Ray goes out for a drink of water. While Billy Ray's out there, he comes back with a crazy story. He's seen some lights out in the woods and uh, saw a disc-shaped craft. Now, the people in the home, of course, don't believe Billy Ray. They, they, they think he's making it up. So Billy Ray and Lucky go out, and they start to hear some noises. Uh, they see something glowing coming towards them through the woods. It's a small humanoid. Small humanoid creature, about three foot tall. Long arms, they end in claw-like hands. The thing kind of sways back and forth. Big eyes, big ears. The skin is... So the creature pops up. Uh, they go back in the house. The creature pops up in the screen door. And they shoot at it through the screen door. <laughs> they stepped out on the porch to see what happened to it when a clawed hand reached down from the awning over the porch to grab Billy Ray's hair. Of course, they jump back and they look up. The stuff of horror stories. Yes. And there's one of these little silver men perched on the roof. They shoot at that one, too. It rolls off the roof and disappears into the woods. Creatures start to peer in the windows, peer in the doors, and they shoot at them every time they see them. The place is surrounded. Yeah. The roof, I mean, literally, I mean, at one point, the place is literally crawling with these things. They're on the roof. They're scratching around. They're scaring the children. But yeah, they just kept popping up. They were a nuisance. They'd pop up in the windows, and they'd shoot at them. They'd pop up in the doors, and they'd shoot at them. They'd see them outside in the woods. At one point in time, they go outside and they see one up in an old elm tree. Uh, they take a shot at it. And of course, instead of falling out of the tree like it should have, it just kind of floated away after that. They held these creatures off with gunfire for what they say was nearly four hours. That's a lot of gunshots. And supposedly shot quite a few of them point-blank range. And, and never found one injured. Never found any evidence that they'd been injured. Never found a dead one. Finally, about 11 p.m., they make the 30-minute drive into Hopkinsville proper. To go to the Hopkinsville Police Station, where they report that they've been fighting off basically a small army, 12 to 15 of these little silver men all night long for, for hours. But uh, the Hopkinsville Goblins, of course, creeped into popular culture. This one of the is documented in Project Blue Book as a UFO sighting. It was inspiration for the Pokemon Sableye in the Pokemon games. Wow, I didn't know that. And Kelly now celebrates what they call Little Green Men Days on the third weekend of August every year. Let's see what what I think is really interesting about this. A lot of interesting things, but 
the the mention of little green men of course nowhere in the original sighting did they mention that they were green it was actually if anything they were silver-ish maybe like you said this was one of the earliest uh documented uh sightings of ufos and, and unexplained aliens if you will but the aliens was still a new term yeah uh so goblins i guess would have kind of fit that that mold but um, one of the things I found, and I thought this was kind of comical, but again, you got to consider this time frame. I mean, you're talking 1955. Somebody later on was like, well, what, what did they really see? Or, do you really believe this You know, yeah. kind of deal? And you've always got those people out there, the doubting Thomases, if you will. But there was a, a space program, apparently, going on at that time frame, and they had chimpanzees in astronaut suits that they had flown to space i i guess doing some tests see i i had not heard that i i, 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 I heard saw about one owls. reference horned owls yes horned that owls. was that was another one which by the early sketch uh they've got in the newspaper which is a, a, a very early rendition you can definitely see the pointy ears they're talking about is more goblin like out of dungeons and dragons or whatever these pointy ears are sticking directly up above their head it does look like a horned owl's face but I, I would think, again, rural Kentuckians, uh, obviously probably avid hunters, would recognize a horned owl or a group of horned owls. I Again, I was kind of doing some research. I'm reading over some of my notes here. And, and it was funny, some of the newspaper captions that came out. And uh, they were using the reference to these goblins that it was part of the Senate GOP policy committee. <laughs> and they were simply green with envy. But yeah, that was the green aliens as they were green with envy at the popularity of President uh, Dwight Eisenhower at the time. <laughs> I'm like, really? You put that in the newspaper post? Uh, that seemed a little weird. <laughs> I guess, uh, I guess if anything, politics and, and the like just don't change. They're always going to spin it in their own way, right? Yeah, everybody's got to spin. They got to put on everything. But, yeah, these little silver men crawling all over the house, terrorizing this family all night long. Them just shooting at them, whether there was alcohol related or not there was a reference to a sutton and of course yeah. popcorn <laughs> sutton uh, was a famous moonshiner in that area I, I i think truly i mean what happened we may never truly know but yeah whatever whatever happened that night uh, outside of hopkinsville on that farm that family legitimately believed that they were beset by these little silver men and again what really happened that night we we don't know we weren't there but that's that's what this podcast is all about we just wanted to tell that story giants in america but in early 1900s here in america there were literally hundreds of newspaper reports all across northern america of what they are calling giant-sized humanoids and by definition that seems to be somewhere around the eight foot height range and taller uh, yet today, no mainstream newspaper reports such finds, or even the historical accounts of just over a century ago. All of these findings, uh, most of them were scooped up by the Smithsonian. Uh, I thought that was interesting. The Smithsonian Institute would come around. Uh, a lot of these people would find these mounds, uh, some considered Indian burial mounds, uh, and they would start digging in them, maybe as they're clearing a field, early settlers, uh, maybe as they're building their houses, would come across these, not fully understanding what they were. Uh, and they would find these giant remains. May 25th, this was in 1882, uh, happened to be in the New York Times, a giant skull was discovered along with a, uh, artifacts in the Red River Valley area. Uh, this particular mound was 60 foot in diameter and nearly 12 foot tall. Uh, they went in and started excavating this, and in the center, they uh, indeed found skeletal remains of about a dozen men and women, 
along with several animal bones that they were planted with. And again, by definition, all of these were eight foot and taller. Some were stretching up close to nine foot. There's another sighting, uh, report, I should say, May 5th, 1885. A small mound was opened by a group of schoolboys. Now, this one was something more along the lines of 12, 15 foot in diameter, much smaller scale. Uh, they found by digging through the top, it dropped open almost like to a cavern area, a vault had a stone floor, the bark-type ceiling that I had mentioned, four huge skeletons, three being over seven foot tall, but they thought those were the women, and one male that was over eight foot tall. It, it's kind of strange. A lot of the Indian cultures uh, believed in giants. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, if you know Native American Indians, they still actually talk about it. It is, it is in their history. It is in their lore. There is one in particular in the Wisconsin area where strange skeletons are found and they interviewed several of the Native American Indians and they said that in their past history they actually spoke the tongue of the giants. They spoke of trading with the giants. They also spoke that they weren't always friendly. Uh, there was uh, one report that I read that was talking about, especially way before the white man came to America and it was all Native Americans, that the giants and the Indians would actually battle. And there were certain areas that were declared the giant's domain that the Indians did not hunt, they did not trespass on, and it was kind of a mutual respect. And they mentioned that after that, you know, the giants kind of kept to themselves. They honored that treaty, so obviously there was some intelligence, you know, maybe there and everything. Uh, there was a Missouri giant that was found. They dug up the remains when a gentleman was trying to clear land for his house and found a large flat rock, yeah. and underneath this was right there off of his front porch, what would be his front porch, a nine-foot-tall giant remain. And underneath of it was possibly younger giants or women. They didn't get specific, but like seven-foot-tall. And uh, now that one was not buried with anything fancy. Well, there, there was a mention in an 1873 report that the Smithsonian, I will put... <laughs> put out actually in their report so this is not like some random newspaper ad but uh the skull that they discovered near anna illinois had a circumference of 36 inches that's a yardstick that is three foot in a little town called steelville missouri in 1933 yeah i've got that one here you've got that we'll take it over i'll let you tell me tell me about it um well what i've got is there was a 12 year old boy by the name of billy Harmon. he was on the puckett farm on the merrimack river near steelville uh he entered a cave he was looking for for native american relics when he saw a hole in the ground he, he saw that there was some some white material there and after they excavated that hole out a little bit he found they found that it was a skeleton uh the skeleton would have measured eight feet tall Gotcha. With, with what they had there. And that was one of those ones that was allegedly ferried on to the Smithsonian Institute. Moberly, Missouri. And this is probably one of the more interesting ones that I that I, I really kind of fell down a rabbit hole with this one. Uh, reported in the New York Times on April 9th in 1885. Buried 360 feet below the city of Moberly. They discovered, uh, while excavating in a coal mine, what amounted to a, a giant city. Wow. Uh, they they kind of wondered about, they found a, a hall that was 30 feet by 100 feet with stone benches and tools. There was evidence of metalworking that had been done, some statues. Sounds like the Dwarvish Mines of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, <laughs> would, have, 
would have definitely had that vibe to it, except for on a bigger scale. A bigger scale, yes. Um, they were there were bronze statues, and it seemed like it had been maybe trapped in a some sort of lava flow. As they wandered about, they found a skeleton in a courtyard, kind of you know a street intersection, if you will. It was lying lying beside this fountain were portions of a human skeleton. The femur would have measured four and a half feet in length. The tibia four foot three inches. Doing the math from that, they figure when alive, this figure would have been three times the size of your average man. I mean, roughly 18 feet tall. Holy cow. I mean, when you say giant, these would be giants. That's the definition <laughs> of a giant, yes. Uh, supposedly, the group spent about 12 hours searching in this giant city under the ground. Uh, that was about as long as their oil lamps would have lasted, and then they climbed out. There's a story that, that military forces, American military forces, encountered a living giant in, in Afghanistan, maybe. I, did, um, I think I saw some reference yeah, to that. One of our overseas theaters of war. And even if that story's a hoax, they do write about the extra rows of teeth and, and some of the more primitive features. So, Have you heard the untold tales of the Ozarks waterways? The tales of giant catfish. Indeed, indeed. Now, these are always stories told by a friend of a friend. It's never a first-hand account, it seems like. <laughs> Uh, a diver, somebody just, you know, on on the lakeshore. Typically, these these giant catfish are seen by deep water divers uh, working by the intake gates of the dam. Stories seem pretty consistent that the divers will always come up and they vow that they'll never go down in the lake again. They'll tell stories of catfish with heads as big as Volkswagen bugs, a catfish big enough to swallow a man whole. And some of the stories include catfish actually swallowing people and spitting them back out. Grabbing a leg or an arm. Uh, again, like I said, these stories are they're, they're very rarely ever first-hand accounts. Now, there was a, a diver interviewed by the show River Monsters, which is going to get mentioned quite a few times today, I think. Yes, yes. He claimed to have seen flatheads in the 200 to 300 pound range down in the lake. He was a salvage diver. We'd go down in boat wrecks and things like that. Now, these, these giant fish are often blamed for drowning victims that are never found, which unfortunately happens on the lake from time to time. It is a very heavily trafficked lake, which means there are, there are accidents every year that claim people's lives. Now, as far as records and, and fish, the biggest catfish ever caught in Lake of the Ozarks so far is 103 pounds, which is a big catfish. Uh, the largest fish ever caught in Lake of the Ozarks was a 134-pound paddlefish. They get pretty big. If you've ever seen them, they're kind of monstrous themselves. But uh, they are basking feeders. They, they swim around with their mouths open and collect little microscopic creatures that they eat. Well, it wouldn't be dangerous to people. And probably wouldn't be attacking a five-foot catfish. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> now, even without monster catfish in the lake, there is another monstrous fish that has come up from time to time. I think you looked into that a little bit more. That would be a piranha. When I first heard this story, I was like, piranha in Missouri? What in the world? But, uh, yeah, actually, History Channel's Monster Quest, um, they did actually a TV series or a show called Piranha Invasion. It was uh, March of 2010. Uh, For those of you who might not know, uh, River Monsters is a British-American documentary television show out of uh, United Kingdom. Uh, It's hosted by extreme angler biologist Jeremy Wade. He travels all over the world and checks out river creatures, river monsters, he actually was here at uh, Lake of the Ozarks, uh, just north of us uh, here in Lebanon, Missouri, and did some diving, did some studies on some recent piranha sightings, actually some live ones that were caught. 
a um, couple years in a row, and these were about an 8-inch slab piranha. Now, you know, 8-inch, that's a pretty good-sized piranha. It's, you know, dinner plate size, if you will. Now, don't they say that the piranha in the lake, those are released by aquarium owners? If you talk to Missouri Conservation or a lot of those sites, they totally scoff the piranhas living in Missouri as just fake hoaxes if you will fake news yeah <laughs> fake news i mean somebody had this in an aquarium it got too big to take care of them so we dumped them uh, but still it's semi-common uh lake springfield down uh, springfield missouri just south of us they've caught them in that little tiny lake uh, and i think they were like a five inch uh we've caught uh, several eight inch like i said up around lake of the ozarks area uh just fishing fishing around the dam area, fishing around uh, all those areas. And the lake, of course, is a big area. But uh, several years in a row, they've been catching these. And I was going to say, I think they average one or two a year, from yeah, what I understand. That's a lot of people randomly dumping piranhas out of their aquarium. I yeah. mean, you know, I'm no expert, of course, but that, that seems a little strange. When I first heard the piranhas being caught and we went up to the Lake of the Ozarks, it makes you kind of hesitate a little bit before you put your toe in the water. Well, we're going to move south down to the Arkansas-Missouri state line. We're going to talk about the White River. Early tales exist of a creature in the White River overturning a canoe of a Quapaw Indian and even sinking a Confederate gunboat during the Civil War. It's the, the river monster that could have turned the tide of the war. Wow. The first document deciding of something in the White River came in December of 1912. There were timber workers working on floating rafts of cedar uh, just below Branson when they saw something large and strange at the bottom of the river. They couldn't quite make it out. They estimated whatever it was, it had to be 300 pounds or more. They believed it was a giant turtle. They went back and tried to catch it to no luck. They, they, they couldn't find it again. Here in Missouri, at the Lake of the Ozarks, right around mile marker number 31, it's not just 30 or 40 foot of murky waters and mud beneath you. The fact is, there's the remnants of an entire town that is beneath the waters of the lake. Uh, for those around here might be familiar, it's, it's Old Lynn Creek. Old Lynn Creek was founded back in 1841. That was about 20 years before the Civil War. With time came expansion and innovation. And in 1929, the locals were told, and I can't imagine this, but the locals uh, were told basically in a little meeting, your entire town is going to be underwater uh, due to the project of uh, damming up the Osage River that would eventually become Bagnell Dam. Uh, during that time frame, uh, the now-submerged ghost town had nearly two dozen commercial buildings, uh, a dozen or more homes, and three churches. Um, they are now at the bottom of the Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, Lynn Creek, the new Lynn Creek town, is built there, uh, but the old Lynn Creek is what we're talking about that's now, there at the bottom of the water. Now, are these, were these structures flooded intact? or That's a great question. Because one of the ghost stories, if you will, that comes from the Lake of the Ozarks is there's accounts of church bells being heard ringing from beneath the lake, especially those dark, dreary nights while fishermen are out, maybe catfishing, running the limb lines and trot lines. Um, many fishermen and locals who live right around the area actually even caution, if you hear the tolls of the bell, be cautious, something bad is about to happen. It's been associated with being heard right before boating accidents, drownings, fires, or other natural disasters. Have you heard the story of Megalodon? This is a giant shark. Supposedly it lived about 23 to 3.6 million years ago. Uh, it is regarded as extinct at this point in time. 
by by most scientists. It was considered one of the largest and most powerful predators to ever have lived on the planet. It is known only from fragmentary remains, so the actual size and appearance are unknown. Sharks are cartilaginous fish, so their skeletons don't fossilize. The only thing that's typically found of their remains is fossilized teeth. Uh, as a matter of fact, as I did the research for this one, I could look across the room and see three specimens of megalodon tooth. Right there in your living room. In my living room. <laughs> uh, this has been a fascination of mine for years. Now, the size of the megalodon is estimated from its teeth, which people compare to the existing great white. Estimates say that it could be up to 60 feet. Now, could the megalodon still be swimming in our oceans? That's the big story. Now, most scientists will tell you that is not the case. There's no more megalodon. They went extinct. If they existed, we would have seen they're, one by now. They're big enough. How could we miss it? Yeah, you're talking something the length of two school buses. But now for the evidence. Does great does the megalodon still swim in the ocean? 1918. We got a couple of sightings, actually. First one, 1918, but a couple from Australia. In 1918, Australian naturalist David Stead and a local, local fisheries inspector, Mr. Patton, uh, recorded an events that caused the local crayfish fishermen to refuse to go back into the water. They did their fishing out in deep water with these big crayfish pots. They're over three foot in diameter and very heavily, very heavy when loaded with catch. They refused to go out because they saw what they believed to be a massive shark that had taken their gear, demolished their gear, taken the pots the whole nine yards, just off Broughton Island. Now, these men were men familiar with the sea. They were out on the ocean all the time. That was where they made their living. They'd seen sharks. They'd seen whales. They'd seen these, these you know, various sea creatures. Uh, but this encounter scared them so badly that they refused to go back to work for days. They, they described the head alone was at least as long as the roof of a wharf shed at Nelson's Bay. Now, as far as comparisons go, I don't know how big that shed was. I'm not familiar with Nelson's Bay. Don't have any pictures of that. Uh, they believe it was around 115 feet. Pure white in color. Pure white in color is notable because in nature, albinism is sort of a curse. A lot of creatures don't survive when they're pure white. It draws attention to them. Absolutely. No camouflage um, whatsoever. Yeah, they tend to be eaten by predators fairly quickly. I had found a reference in a book uh, that was by author B.C. Cartmel, and he describes an alleged incident that took place off the edge of Australia's Great Barrier Reef, the area yeah. that you were talking about, in the 1960s. According to Cartmel... The sailors uh, involved initially, uh, they refused to even talk about it, that their 85-foot ship was forced to weigh anchor for engine repairs. The captain and the crew were shocked to see a gargantuan, what they described as a white shark, kind of similar to what you were describing. And the, the white color comes up again. Again, slowly swim past their ship. And from what I understand, it had struck their ship. They didn't know what they had hit, and a white shark in color swims slowly past like it's circling them as prey it rivaled the boat size obviously so they're saying it was larger than 85 foot uh one of my favorite ones that i found in the process of, of, of researching this one and i thought i had heard every megalodon story there was 2013 50 miles north of vancouver british columbia uh, off the coast of canada there was a massive shark was seen to drag the carcass of a sperm whale underwater after apparently killing it Sperm whales are not small, yeah. and they themselves are, are a pretty significant ocean predator. Witnesses that have lived on the coast their whole lives say they'd never seen a shark's fin as large as the, the shark tail that broke the surface as it pulled the whale underneath, uh, with one man describing it as the width of a fishing boat. Uh, the corpse of that particular whale washed up about an hour or so after this alleged attack on shore, and it was examined by marine biologist Robert Culper. 
He said it appeared as if the entire lower third of the whale had been dissected in a single bite. Wow. A large tooth measuring 7.5 inches, 7.5 inch tooth, had been found in the whale's spine. I know my wife and I, we traveled to North Carolina just last year and uh, was lucky enough to meet up with uh, two professional divers. But he told us a story. And, I mean, again, I I hold this credible. This is an ex-Navy diver who still does this today. And he says, I'm going to tell you what. He goes, "Uh, I'm not going to say Megalodon exists today. But he goes, I have been diving many days of the week. And he said there was one particular time that uh, he was trying to pull up. He'd found uh, a couple teeth. And he said uh, a giant shadow came across him from up above. He thought it was a ship. It was so large. And he said, you kind of get that eerie feeling that somebody's watching me or something's watching me. And, you know, he kind of turned around and looked. And his ship was directly above him where it had always been. And it was still there. And the shadow was gone. So something swam through that area, and he said, I surfaced immediately. (laughs) He said, it scared the heck out of me. He goes, thank goodness I was in the water, because there may have been some additional liquids put into the water (laughs) at said time. Now we're going to drift a little bit south of there to the Sea of Cortez, where there have been sightings of massive sharks for years. Uh, Locals have dubbed this particular beast the Black Demon. Love that name, the Black Demon. We're getting away from that white coloration to to more of a black color here. They claim it is three times larger than any of the biggest great whites known in that area. Uh, And they blame it for decimating uh, local marine mammal populations. They say it it just comes in and, and gorges itself. I can understand why. Could they still be out there surviving? I did read an article, or no, the end of 2019, said there have been a lot of strange and unusual whale uh, attacks on whales in equatorial equator area waters. Now, those would be warmer waters. They find whale carcasses uh, where whales have been killed or whales that have been injured, wounded, or maimed by a predator of significant size. So I've got to ask the question, have you heard of a Dr. Tanzler, German immigrant, had traveled to Italy as a child. He claimed there he was visited by a deceased ancestor, the Countess Anna Constina von Kossel. In a dream as a child, he communed and walked with the dead, and the Countess, one of his ancestors, revealed to the young boy the face of his true love. She would be an exotic, dark-haired woman, and that he should seek her out to ever find true happiness. Uh, Mr. Tanzler returned back to Germany around 1920, where he met and married a lady by the name of Doris Schaefer. Together, the couple had two daughters. One, unfortunately, died at the young age of seven from diphtheria, as he left his family and made his way to America in 1927. There, he joined his sister in an area called Zephyr Hills in Florida. In 1930, Carl Tanzler had taken a job as a radiologist there at the U.S. Marine Hospital in Key West, Florida, under the name Carl von Kossel. It was here that he met Maria Alana Milagro de Hoyos. She was a Cuban-American woman with dark hair and lovely features, which matched the woman of his dreams, did everything (laughs) he could to save the beautiful young woman. Sadly, despite all the treatments and the efforts, uh, Maria Alana Hoyos succumbed to the disease on October 25, 1931. 
And tuberculosis was typically fatal at that time. It was hard to treat. Well, she was buried in an above-ground mausoleum, the funeral and part of the special mausoleum being paid for by none other than... Dr. Tansler. Dr. Foot the Bill. Dr. Flip the Bill. That's that's normal. To which Tansler would retain the only key, too. Dr. Tansler, or as he was going at the time, Dr. Von Kossel, was said to visit her grave almost every night. It is said that the good doctor continued to experiment, and after almost three years after her death, he believed he had found a way to bring Maria Alana back to life. Well, he claimed that uh, her spirit would come to visit him while he was at her graveside. I had her. And that. It, uh, that, she, that she told him to take her from her grave. Take me from this grave. So on one evening in April 1933, he sneaks into the cemetery with literally a little red wagon, breaks into the mausoleum, and steals the corpse to return home with her. It is proven he lives with her, with this corpse, for seven years, from 1933 to about late 1940. And by that time, word gets back to Maria's sister, uh, Florinda, I believe is the way you might pronounce it, from a neighbor that the doctor is seen dancing with a woman that resembles Maria in his window of his front room. He is seen dancing with this woman in the front living room window. The housemaid is never allowed to go into the master bedroom. However, remember seeing a young woman lying in bed through the cracked door. I guess the type of woman that the sister was, Florinda, she knew where the doctor lived, went right to his front door. Yeah, confronted him. Just confronted him right to his face, knocked on the door. The good doctor smiles, knows her by name, welcomes her into the house. And never, never seemed like anything was out of place. Like it was totally normal to him. Totally normal. Totally normal. Come on in. Come on in. She does not hesitate. Goes directly to the house, knocks on the door. Doctor warmly greets her, welcomes her into the house. Florinda just point blank asks about her sister. And the doctor smiles and eagerly takes (laughs) the two sisters to meet. Florinda is astonished and speechless to say the least. Well, Florinda, the sister, she leaves the house and returns back to the family, where uh, obviously she shares the story with the family, and they immediately report it to the local police. Uh, officials arrive quickly and remove the corpse. He believes he's done nothing wrong. He has made no secrets about it. Uh, for lack of the only thing he didn't do was take her out publicly. Well, and public opinion was even generally sympathetic for Tansler. They, they viewed him as a romantic now, they, they did eventually remarry her in the Key West Cemetery in an unmarked grave, so people would not... For understandable maybe, reasons. Maybe just to keep Tansler away, who knows? Yeah, Dr. Von Kossel Tansler goes on to live to the ripe old age of 75, but later on, Dr. Carl Tansler, he continues to long for his lost love. You know, the body has been taken yeah. away. Yeah. Um, so, he used a forensic death mask of of the young lady for the basis and built a life-size dummy mannequin, which he kept yeah. in his bed until yeah. his own death this in 1952. This obsessed with, with this woman. Well, reports kind of vary, but they say even when he passed away at, at the age of uh, 75 on July 3rd, 1952, they found him three weeks after his death laying in the floor with, uh, with her, with her mannequin, her effigy in his arms. Have you ever heard of the Black Eyed Kids. 
Some people say it started on the internet as a creepy pasta or pasta, depending on how you want to pronounce that word. Typically will appear between 6 to 16 years old. They'll have pale skin. And as per the namesake, they'll have jet black eyes. No, no coloration whatsoever. No white. No distinguishing feature. Just pure black in the eye. They'll wear drab clothes. Uh, I think the most common outfit described is a hoodie and jeans. Uh, and, or sometimes they'll be old-fashioned, similar to like how the Amish would dress. They usually travel in pairs. Sometimes in groups. Rarely will you encounter just one, but it's not unheard of. Sometimes they do appear singularly. Usually they'll be hitchhiking or panhandling. Again, the most common version of this story is, is the kids will knock on the door and they'll ask to use your telephone or uh, or telegraph. Again, like I said, they, they seem like they're out of time. Out of time, yeah. And they also seem to be more boys than gender to yeah, female versions. Typically, more well. often, it seems to be boys. They will insist on being let inside. And they'll, they'll tell you, you know, that they're not dangerous. They usually have a monotone kind of voice. Let us in. We won't hurt you. This won't take long. Now, the first story that pops up on the internet, The Black Eyed Kids, is from 1996 by a Texas reporter named Brian Bethel from Abilene. He was sitting in his vehicle late one evening. Uh, he had stopped in a parking lot outside of a movie theater to write a check. Two children tapped on his driver's side window. He felt terrified immediately. He looks over, he sees these kids, he's, he feels like they're out of place, out of time, something's just wrong. He feels terrified, but he, he rolls down the window a little bit. The oldest kid says that he and his brother, they wanted to watch a movie, but they didn't have their money. They'd left their money at home, and they asked him for a ride home so they could go get their money. He, they assured him, again, this is those, those black-eyed kids, they said, it'll be okay, mister. We're not going to hurt you. Yeah, we don't, we're not going to hurt you. We don't even have a gun to, to hurt you with. I mean, I think they used that they exactly. Used, yeah, yeah, I read that too. We don't have a gun. Uh, when he broke eye contact with them, that's when his fear seemed to become all-encompassing. He knew he had to get away from these kids. He didn't want anything to do with them. This was, was not someplace he needed to be or wanted to be. They became frustrated when he would make excuses for not giving them a ride. But And they specifically said, we cannot be let inside unless you invite us. He's working night shift. This is back in 2010. Um, it was an ordinary July night in Ohio, and Noetic was in the middle of his night shift. He started craving a cigarette. So he decides he's going to step out front of the building and uh, steps out on the street and lights up his cigarette. And across the street there, kind of in an alley, are two teenage boys. He describes that just start, you know, they start looking at him. He doesn't think a lot about it. I mean, he stepped outside the building. They were over there. You know, maybe he kind of alarmed them or, you know, got their attention. But then they start crossing the street. They keep their heads down. And as Bill described, often these are wearing drabbier clothes, got hoodies kind of pulled over. So not really exposing their heads. Yeah, they don't, they don't, they tend to want to not stand out, I think. Yeah, kind of blend in, fade into the shadows. As they're walking across the street, he gets a glimpse, however, and he just, you know, the hair on the back of his neck kind of stands up. He gets this uneasy feeling, and he starts to see one of them as they raise their head. And again, you see these black, jet black eyes, kind of faceless or motionless face expressions. So he darts back inside the office door, which I'm assuming locks automatically without a key badge or something is kind of implied, and runs back to his cubicle. He's decided he's had enough cigarette. But where he's at in his cubicle, he has security cameras. So he is able to see these two teenage black-eyed kids outside uh, the office building there. And they're like motioning, trying to get his attention, like to let them in. So after a while, you know, he kind of starts getting aggravated. He's like, these teenagers need to go away. So he gets up out of his cubicle. He goes back down and, uh, you know, he's, he's looking at them. Well, now he gets to face them right, you know, right on. There's lighting. He can see both of them has 
these jet black eyes, no pupils whatsoever. And they're hollering at him through and they're like, let me in, let me in. I won't hurt you. And so in his mind, I thought this was kind of weird in his mind. He's thinking, this is where I need to go call the police. He doesn't say anything out loud, but one of these kids is like speaking back to him through the glass. That wouldn't be a good idea to call the police. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't found anything about like mind reading. Yes. So again, um, maybe. And so at this point, this kind of sets the guy over edge. And so he races back to his cubicle, picks up the phone, calling the police, staring at the video surveillance screen, doesn't take his eyes off. And the two boys are out there. They're like beating on the glass. The cops arrive, walk right through them. Ooh, I hadn't heard one like that either. So he goes down to meet them. And again, he saw them on the screen. He sees the cops arrive, but he gets down there. Cops are there. There's no sign of any of the kids. Well, I've got, I've got one last anecdote here. This is in a, a rural town in Vermont, just outside of town. It's a nice, quiet community. Uh, the kind of place where everybody knows everybody. No one locks their doors. It's just not, you don't need to do that. It's, it's like that cheers. Kind of yeah. Everyone knows your name. Everyone knows your name, and, <laughs> and everybody feels safe. And, and, and in this day and age, you know, not locking your doors, I mean, nobody does that. Yeah. You'd have to live in a pretty comfortable neighborhood. So I think that, that kind of sets the scene of, of how peaceful and, and serene and, and friendly this little area was. Gotcha. The wife wakes up to the sound of loud banging on the front door. Uh, they lived in a on a small house on a dirt road. So just someone knocking on the door, they're kind of out of the way. It's not like they're normally going to have norm. a lot of passers-by. And uh, the other part is it's middle of a snowstorm. It's been snowing, you know, basically all day. There's snow on the ground, inches deep. I don't remember the exact, you know, how, they, I don't think they say exactly how deep the snow is, but a lot of snow on the ground, enough that travel is impeded. So the, her first thought was maybe somebody had been in a wreck. Maybe somebody needed their help and had gone off the road. Slid or off the ditch, yeah. So she goes and she looks out the window. She notices that their motion light is on. So obviously there, there's somebody out there, something out there. And she sees footprints in the snow that come from the road and go down the driveway up to the front door. So she figures definitely somebody's going to need help. She wakes up her husband and they go downstairs. So the husband answers the door. There's two children there. There's a boy and a girl. He describes them as being no more than eight years old. They're dressed strangely, kind of out of, out of time. They've got strange haircuts. They describe the boy as having like an old-fashioned bowl cut. The girl's hair was kind of short and cut straight. And they were definitely not dressed for the weather. They weren't in bundled in winter coats or anything. They were just kind of casually dressed. We go back to the hoodies and jeans kind of look maybe. But, you know, sort of drab, plain clothing. Not appropriately for the winter. Uh, now, normal reaction, of course. You see some kids. They need some help. You want to let them in. You know, you're going to help these kids. But they, they already had felt like something was off about this situation. Uh, me, the husband, the wife, they didn't want to let him in. That wasn't their first instinct. They said, we get, we can't let these kids in. <clears throat> they were unnerving. They wouldn't make eye contact when they were talking through them. When the, when the husband was talking to them, they would ask if they were okay. What was going on? You need help. What, what's the deal? And they wouldn't make any eye contact as they talked to him, but they said they asked to come in. Uh, the husband wasn't sure if he wanted them to come in. He, of course he asked where their parents were and they responded with, well, they'll be here soon. They'll be here soon. And they kept saying the parents will be here soon. This is about 2 a.m. at this point. So you're 2 a.m., middle of a snowstorm. It's cold. It's, it's Vermont. I mean, it's, you know, it's definitely not going to be pleasant weather outside. Woke this family up, obviously. Instinct says not to let them in, but they want to do the right thing. They want to be good Samaritans. They let them in the house. The husband takes the kids into the living room while the wife goes to make hot cocoa for them so they can figure out, you know, they want to take care of these kids, make sure they're, they're, they're looked after. It's the right thing to do. Uh, the husband keeps asking if they're okay, uh, how far they had walked, if their parents' car had broke down, and he keeps getting the, well, they'll be here soon. They'll be here soon. 
they had four cats in this household. Three of the cats are nowhere to be found. They can't find any of the cats. Normally the cats are very curious, very friendly. Hey, there's people in the house. You know, rub up on them. Want to get to get some pets. Yes, yes. They're all hiding, except for one. I believe that cat was named Pigeon. He's in the kitchen with the, with the wife. Hold on. A cat named Pigeon? Cat named Pigeon. Okay. Yes. All right. We'll now, normally, again, these cats are normally curious and friendly. Pigeon is standing, like, against the wall as far as he can be away from the living room. He's got his back arched, his, his fur is up, his tail is, you know, poofed up. I mean, he is... You know what they say about cats. Yeah. He, he's, he's definitely... Egyptians kept him for a reason. Yeah, he's detecting something that he doesn't like. He's uncomfortable. She reaches down to pet him, and he just starts growling at her. And, and he, like, skitters off underneath the cabinets. So he is trying to get away. He, he doesn't want to be, you know, part of this situation. So the wife brings the cocoa into the living room. And uh, she's, the first thing she sees is her husband has his head in his hands. He's just, he's not talking to the kids. He's kind of got his head down. He's sort of, you know, kind of, there's obviously something going on with him. So she asked what's going on. He said, well, he felt really dizzy all of a sudden. He's got this super wave of, of dizzy feeling. And then uh, he said he's fine. He'll be fine. He'll be all right. 2 a.m. in the morning, you're woke up by two strange kids. Yeah, Yeah, you're distraught a little bit. So she looks over at the kids. The kids look up. She sees their eyes and almost drops the mugs of cocoa on the floor. The kids have the the jet black eyes. She notices that immediately. It just freaks her out, scares her. They notice her fear. That's that's her her words. They noticed her fear and said, may we use the restroom? So she, she takes them down the hall, takes them to where the restroom's at. They both go in together. Again, kind of weird. She closes girls the door. do that, but not boys and girls. Yeah. She goes back into her husband, and she's she's really like, "Hey, did you did you see their eyes?" And the husband, what he describes, he goes, "Yeah, the, their eyes were black." Like while she's talking to her husband, his nose starts to bleed. Now this man hadn't been prone to nosebleeds; it wasn't something that was common. And she she points that out. She's kind of you know she's kind of panicked by it. So she goes to get some tissues. I don't know if they didn't have any handy where she goes, but as she goes to get the tissues, the lights go out. Ooh. Power goes out. Um, so she turns, this kind of goes back to your story a little bit. She kind of turns as she's coming back down the hallway to bring the tissues to her husband. And she's confronted by the two kids standing at the end of the hallway, absolutely motionless, just sort of staring at her. They're just standing like the, like the twins in the shiny, the shiny. I was thinking the same thing, but they're just staring at her after what she described as forever quotes, quote unquote, the boy looks at her and says, our parents are here. They walk to the door. They, they open it. And they just walk out into the snow. Now, the husband jumps up because he wants to, hey, if their family are here, we want to know that they're taken care of. As soon as he stands up, he almost falls over instantly, plagued by this dizziness. He he just can't barely get across the room. They look out the window, and they they see two men standing by a black car that's idling at the end of the driveway. They're wearing all black suits. uh, They're very tall, six foot tall at least, both of these guys. Wow. The husband waves. The two figures stare. The kids get in the car. The men get in the car, and they drive off into the night. <laughs> so the wife and the husband try to collect themselves. After about 30 minutes, the power comes on. And this is when things go bad. They, they, go, they go bad now. Yeah, they, this the, is when things start getting worse. Oh, my gosh. Okay. You can't. You, the urban legend, obviously, you don't let them into your home. Over the course of the next three months, three out of the four cats go missing. they just never to be seen again. Now, they come home, and they find their cat pigeon laying in the living room in a puddle of blood. Ooh. Um, he's, he, they said it looked like he'd been vomiting blood, but it, just find their cat dead. So they take him to the veterinarian and the veterinarian says, well, maybe it was some kind of hemorrhage. He can't really diagnose what was wrong. What killed their cat? So he just kind of falls back on the best thing he knows. If there's bleeding, it must be a hemorrhage. Hmm. The husband starts having regular nosebleeds, decides, you know what? This is kind of abnormal. Yeah. I'm going to go to the doctor. So the doctor brings him in. 
He's diagnosed with an aggressive form of skin cancer. Okay. Uh, they believe he'll recover, but the thing is, they don't understand how it went from you know undiagnosed to as bad as it was when he got to the hospital. To boom. Yeah. The wife regularly started suffering from dizzy spells and nosebleeds. Uh, she had other health issues that she didn't feel comfortable discussing. Have you heard about the Brooklyn Enigma? A little history. Her name was Molly Fancher. She was dubbed the Brooklyn Enigma and was one of the most famous and debated female oracles of the Victorian era. Young Mary Fancher was born in 1848. She was the eldest of five children, born in uh, Attleboro, Massachusetts. As a young child, uh, she had had to come to deal with her own mother's death, uh, a very unexpected death. Shortly after the mother's death, the family moved to Brooklyn, New York, and her family established himself as a prominent merchant there. Young Molly found her life even further disrupted by her father's remarriage and the deaths of two of her younger siblings. Although her unmarried aunt moved into Brooklyn, uh, there at the house, to help establish herself as a surrogate mother for the surviving children, Molly's life would never be the same. She was fairly popular due to her good looks and pleasant manner, and everything seemed to change when Molly's own health began to fail at the young age of 16. Now, there was a tragic accident that occurred. Uh, Bill? Yeah, apparently she got her skirt cut on a streetcar, and she was drugged for nearly a block. Ouch. Um, suffered uh, head and spinal injuries, was laid up in bed, paralyzed, and slipped in and out of trance states while she was well, in bedridden. Yeah, multiple, like, comas and stuff. Um, so, basically, that accident confined her to bed. Uh, where she basically spent the majority of most of her life, but she would go on to live another 50 years after that accident. While her medical condition in this accident was considered a family matter at first, everything changed with a rather lengthy article that was published in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle newspaper that was on June 7, 1866. It took place about one year after this accident, and it described Molly as a remarkable case. Uh, the article also reported that she had gone for seven weeks without food, and as a result of this, had gained remarkable psychic powers. But over the first six months, Molly's condition deteriorated very quickly after the accident. She ate and drank almost nothing and began, began to suffer from partial paralysis, impaired eyesight. But she got to basically where she was losing her, her eyesight, spinal pain, hemorrhaging lungs, she was coughing up blood. Uh, she was confined to her home, uh, of course, bedfast, as we said. That was by the winter of 1866, and she remained there for another 50 years until her death. Well, one of the things I wanted to touch on that is during this Victorian era, you know, it, it was a different time. It was a different world. And I think a lot of this myself was plagued by young women who was becoming educated, uh, who was actually attending college. They were reading books. And again, it was a different world, so bear with me. But at that time frame, a lot of the society was ran by men, yeah, uh, very dominant men. And they did not like the, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, the women folk speaking up and possibly embarrassing them. And so a lot of times they would call in their friends, other men, who were doctors and like confine the wives and daughters to their beds and bedrooms and stuff. But uh, Molly began to exhibit unusual symptoms. She fell into these trances and had violent 
uh, violent spasms. Some believe she had been possessed by the devil or the demon even. Um, and as you, as we had talked about, she'd started to refuse to eat and drink. One of the accounts uh, literally said, uh, I'm sorry, this is, this is far-fetched, but it says over the next 16 years, observers claim not a single morsel of food or a drop of liquid reached her stomach. Yeah. Uh, now, I thought it was interesting it said reached her stomach, so maybe that does imply she was trying to eat. It just maybe came up or, or whatever. But according to one account, uh, her stomach had literally collapsed so that by placing the hand in the cavity of her spinal column, it could be felt. Yeah, so like, I, it was like deteriorating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, the newspapers at the time, they... they they elaborated this. Um, you know, they had come out with the earlier article and, and it got a lot of attention. And so I think this was probably just a, a newspaper ploy to, to get front page story headline news kind of thing. Well, and I think with, with Molly Fancher, the story is a little different. I don't think they ever proved her to be fraudulent in any way. A lot of the other fasting girl stories, they do eventually prove to be hoaxes one way or another. Uh, now, Molly now is in her 20s uh, in the 1870s. She'd become somewhat of a, we'll call it a psychic medium celebrity of her time. While her eyesight had apparently failed, uh, she was able to see and describe detailed objects brought into her room, uh, comment on events that had occurred well beyond the normal range of vision. She could read letters in sealed envelopes. I believe uh, she would be able to predict when there'd be a knock at the door or when thunderstorms were going to happen. One was part of it. One particular story was she told her aunt, again, who was by her bedside, she says, you need to go answer the door. And the aunt says, no one's at the door yet. And she goes, well, there will be. Within a few moments, there was, you know, the yeah. you know, knock on the door. And it was an uncle that they had not saw in years. And not only did she say, oh, it's uncle so-and-so, and I don't remember his name, but he is in dire need of help. Well, he had been injured and had sought them out while he was passing through Brooklyn. Huh. Before she knew this, before he ever yeah. actually knocked on the door, and sure enough, you know the aunt goes downstairs, greets the uncle, and sure enough, he was he was needing help. So, got some psychic ability <laughs> definitely going on there. But you know, she could do all of this. She kept her eyes often bandaged, as her eyesight was failing to different degrees. But she took it a step further when she went in and out of these comas, if you will, uh, trances. She would awaken. And she would tell her aunt that she had communed with the dead. She had walked with the dead, spoke with the dead. In particular, visited her mother uh, in heaven. She was a very religious girl. She did not want to be considered part of that new age movement and all that. She <laughs> she declared, uh, you know, she was a Christian girl and, you know, all of that. And so there was a lot of references yeah. to heaven. No, no witchcraft for no her. No witchcraft. No, no, no. Hoodoo, voodoo stuff. But... Uh, she awoken one time after one of these comas and asked her aunt to bring her some needleworking uh, yeah, material. I was going to ask about this. And the aunt's like, you don't know how to do that. <laughs> and she goes, I do now. And because of the contortions of her body, I think she kind of had one arm, her left arm, that was, for whatever reason, kind of up behind her head. And so this girl awoke out of a coma got embroidering and would embroidery blindfolded up by the side of her head, totally out of what she could have possibly even seen through bandages and just started making this beautiful, elaborate needlework. And another thing that she was known to do is she crafted very fragile, lifelike wax flowers. 
Now, some of the alleged powers that uh, Mary had is she, as we talked, she could predict like when the front doorbell would ring uh, before anybody got there. And not only that it would ring, but who it would be and what their business uh, would be. Uh, she could run her hands over pages of a book or a newspaper with her eyes closed and bandaged and read the words out loud without air. Uh, she could also speak with the dead to gain answers for visitors on uh, where items had been hidden or lost uh, by deceased loved ones. Uh, or possibly to gain answers to other questions. She could determine what a sealed letter was in an envelope or perhaps identify a playing card that be that would be put underneath her pillow. Uh, and Molly Fancher herself never cared for the spiritualist label I had mentioned. You know, she was a very religious woman. She insisted on staying true to her Methodist roots and regarded herself as an earnest Christian in her own words, quote-unquote. Well, back to little Molly. We'll go back to her story a little bit. During the time frame of the 1870s to 1880s, it was her heyday. Uh, the newspaper articles, I think, had flourished, as we had talked about, talking about, you know, weeks, even a point of uh, nearly 16 years without eating. One six-month period alone said that her food intake was nothing more than four teaspoons of milk. So it wasn't that she was totally fasting, but, you know, she was just... Just an un unbelievable amount of food like there should have been that, that's not enough to get by no no well molly francher's life seemed to kind of calm down by the late 1880s uh the rise and fall of spiritualism the impact of charles darwin's theories collective psyche uh these things seem to kind of overshadow the story of poor molly fancher herself as public interest receded uh during the 1880s her most remarkable symptoms seemed to just kind of mysteriously fade away she experienced fewer trances. Her eyesight returned. Uh, she also no longer claimed to be able to communicate with the dead. Uh, at some point in the early 1890s, she began eating openly. And even photographs from that period, period show a strikingly plump lady. I believe some of the pictures I saw must have been from that time frame. <laughs> yeah, reclining like in a normal chair, not in her bed. You know, in, in her chair, relaxing at her home. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.